Coming up on Office Hours with Carp and Loge, we talk about Twitter turning into X. We talk about Jim Jordan going after social scientists. And how do you plan for a public communication strategy when the stakes are high, the opponents are ridiculous, and you need to go on offense? Check it out. All right, people of the pot. Welcome to the second to last episode before we go on hiatus of Office Hours with Carp and Loge, your strategic communication hot takes with footnotes. I am, as I always am at this time, your co-host, Peter Loge, an associate professor in the School of Media Public Affairs at the George Washington University. And I am joined, as I always am at this time, by Dave Carp, associate professor at GW School of Media and Public Affairs. Uh, I am here to help Peter Loge deal with his imposter syndrome. Ah! That's right. Two episodes left. I got to come up with the really good bad puns. Yeah. Uh, to be clear, I threatened Peter on this before the pod. The reason why we're going on hiatus and not ending is we're only committing to ending if he's committing to being SNPA director forever. So, yeah, it's on hiatus. We'll be back. We'll be back. We'll Second be last back. episode before the school year starts and you become SNPA director and have to deal with me in an administrative capacity. So that can go well or badly for you, do you think? I, I, it's not, it's not about me. I'm the one with the office and the power. I just imagine a lot of conversations. Can I do that? No. Can I do that? No. Can I do that? No. It's, it's, I watch, you know, I've watched people parent in grocery stores and candy aisles. I assume it'll be, it'll be similar to that. There we go. So uh, you heard it here first. Peter Lodge thinks that uh, SMPA faculty are a bunch of children. Uh, <laughs> also thinks he's going to have power in his new position. Uh, we all know that, uh, or all, all, all the listeners know that my main project these days intellectually is studying past predictions to see what they got wrong. We'll check back on that one and see whether uh, you end up learning the power or not. Eh? I, I am under no illusion that I have no power. I the, the working metaphor for this, it's not a great thing to say out loud, but so I was supposed to move into my new, I get a cool office, right? And the director of this corner office and it's it's super good. Leo of money, they give you, they give you square footage and take away time, which... I don't know. Seemed like a good deal at the time, and uh, nobody had the key. So I was supposed to move in, move in, because apparently nobody had the key, and so that it just feel like is the the operational metaphor is. Congratulations to the director. You can't get into your office. I'm under no illusion of any power. I like it. I like it. All right. I, I am looking forward to here to my defense. I do feel like I need to say it's a terrific group of colleagues and students, and I am I am looking forward to hopefully. Hopefully doing a good job. All right. Enough of that. Enough He's of that. We earnest can... about this. He refuses to let the stark, the, the snark lie there. I'm going to have so much fun bugging him. <laughs> I feel like the podcast is going to play out constantly. I'm going to like try to make the podcast happen during faculty meetings. You'll be like, <laughs> we've got an agenda and everyone else in the meeting is going to be like, Dave, stop. And I just won't because I have tenure. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be great. We have something that people are tuning in for. Yeah. It turns out nobody's on Twitter anymore. We're now all on on X. <laughs> I just like the first time that I got to make fun of Elon Musk on this podcast, I felt like this is kind of off topic, but I just like I need to vent. And somehow he's become the returning theme because he's just this living example of why, like, no, actually, you do need a comms team. It, you're going to miss it if it's gone. So Elon Musk, who the I, I want to note that the Wall Street Journal reported in the lead of a story last, or I think earlier this month or late last month, uh, the lead of the story was Elon Musk uses ketamine. Like 
takes it both recreationally and also microdoses for himself. So like dudes on drugs, which is noteworthy since randomly on a Sunday, he announced, uh, we're, Twitter's not Twitter anymore. It's X. It's just the letter X. And we're going to change all the branding to X as soon as someone can give me a cool image of the letter X. And like somebody just went into like font types and was like, do you think this font looks cool? And he was like, yeah, that's the cool one. So yeah, it's ugly as hell. They He, he spent $44 billion buying Twitter. Twitter comes with a bunch of people who work there. He fired basically all of them. Comes with a code base. He has made fun of the code base and insulted it and said like, we need to tear it down. He's been tearing it down. It comes with a network of people. He has consistently degraded the network. Comes with a bunch of relationships with existing advertisers. He's alienated all those advertisers. And it comes with 17 years of built-in brand recognition. So he's decided to get rid of that too. This is like if when they debuted New Coke, they had changed the name of the company to New. It is, I have to say, when I when I opened Twitter, uh, which I'm doing less and less these days, on, I guess, Monday morning, and I saw the X, I thought, oh, there's a glitch in the programming. Musk broke something or my internet flaked out at the last minute and this is the, like, equivalent of the 404 code. Uh, when I learned it was on purpose, I thought, wow, this is, he basically, he has the comms chops of a day-old crawler <laughs> and, and the business instincts of an eight-year-old hopped up on, on bad cotton candy. It's just not, like they call the cops when removing the Twitter logo from the building. They didn't get a permit. Right, like, and you're going broke because the thing to do is invest in a whole lot of new letterhead. Like, what do you, what? <laughs> like, the joke is, how do you make 20, if you're Elon Musk, how do you make $20 million? Start with 44. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, two other things I want to hear that. One is they have been trying to stand up, stand it up as a video platform, right? Like this was bringing Tucker Carlson on. They're making a big like, well, if everyone's on TikTok, we'll just be TikTok because we want to be the everything app. So if you change your name to X, then your videos are X videos. And let me just encourage our listeners not to Google that at work because it's exactly what you would think it is. Of course, it is the internet's for porn. And of course, since he's driven all the normal people away, another thing that his videos, his X videos will have in common with X videos is there'll be the, you will see the same percentage of dicks and assholes left on both sites. I know this is not safe for work. I don't care. We're out on the podcast. Like I, I by the way, I, I appreciate the shout out to Avenue Q for our listeners who uh, who didn't quite catch that that mm-hmm. from that clever little insight there from Dave. I'll throw it in the footnotes. Avenue Q. That footnotes. Excellent podcast, and the uh, it was a great thing. The other thing I want to point out is people who used to use Twitter and then left for Blue Sky or anywhere else would refer to themselves as ex-Twitter users. Now people who pay $8 a month to use his stupid website are also going to refer to themselves as ex-Twitter users. Like when you were brainstorming names, did like that that was the first one that came up and he was just sort of like, that's good. That's perfect. That's And like, I, sh- I should note, since I know the history here, x.com was the name of the uh, website that he wanted to, he wanted to make PayPal into x.com. 
He was the head of PayPal. And he was like, even though we've got really good branding on PayPal, people know what this is. Like it is the thing that people use on eBay. Let's destroy that brand recognition because I think that the letter X is just cool. And this was like in the late 1990s before he had struck it really big. And the rest of PayPal was like, that's a dumb idea. You're no longer CEO. And in a real way, like I think that actually matters here because that was the thing he was doing in his 20s that was a meaningful loss. And now dude's in his 50s. He's still, I swear to God, just having a midlife crisis. Like this is the reason why you should not be equipped with $200 billion when you go through a midlife crisis because things are going to go really bad. Um, like you've just got too much capital to do dumb things with, but it's like, he's decided, okay, well now that I have $200 billion, I need to go back and name something else X.com and no one can fire me this time. And the problem is Elon, it was a stupid idea then too. Management lesson here. Then we're going to shift to the comm stuff. Cause there's a lot of actually, I think important comm stuff to talk about. Every good manager um, has somebody who they trust, who trusts them who will pull them aside, close the door and say, you're being a dumbass. You don't want everybody on your team doing that, Dave. <laughs> but you do want, there's got to be somebody, and I've worked with, you and I have both worked with a lot of people with a lot of money and power and, and fancy titles. And as a consultant, that's kind of what mm-hmm. I get paid to do. And some of them are really smart and, and thoughtful and honestly wanted an honest answer when, you, when, you, when they asked you if that was stupid. Uh, too many don't. I knew when I was a, I was helped run the U.S. Institute of Peace. There was somebody on my team named Liz Callahan, whose job was the the loge whisperer. And junior staff knew that they could tell her something. She would walk into my office, close the door, and say, "Peter, you need to stop doing that." Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah in in our office in SMPA effectively serves that role. Everybody's got to have that, and if you don't have it, you end up doing things like, "Dude, I know, got this idea. It'll be paybacks." X, man, you'll, dude, like the idea that he's in midlife crisis assumes he got to, to, to midlife and I'm still like at 14, he just drank way too much Jolt Cola or something in his brain. I don't know. We've got other stuff. In the, the remaining episode and, and a chunk, I want to turn attention to something that's very real and very pressing that's also at, at the heart of this, this podcast. I mean, sure, it's two middle-aged white guys who think they're smarter and funnier than they are. So by, by local DC statute, we actually have to have a podcast. We don't want to do this. <laughs> I just don't want to be in violation of whatever code that is. But it's also the idea was hot takes with footnotes, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because you and I both get a little tired of talking heads who are just going to pop off with whatever they think is clever or they heard last or they think went wrong last without any actual research into political science or social science literature or philosophy or history. And so we try to, to do that. And we also try to fess up to our mistakes when we make mistakes yeah. and they are legion. Um, not enough people do that. So we, I want to talk about two things in particular. One is the need for political communication scholars, political scientists, other social scientists, at least some of them to pay attention to what's going on in the day-to-day world and how their research can help improve it or inform it. And then on the other side, advocates, practitioners, and others turning to the social sciences, to philosophy, political communication, political science, to figure out how they do their jobs better. And one of the places this is manifesting right now is is Chairman Jordan in, in the House of Representatives calling social scientists to testify to defend basically their ability to add. Mm-hmm. And, and the too much of the reaction from academia, from foundations and government funders 
has been been to play defense and say it's not it's not that bad it's not us pick on somebody else rather than saying no 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 this is the most relevant the most useful social science so i want to turn our attention to that yeah. starting and, with the importance of social science in in practice yeah and, and you, for, I, just want, uh, I want to make um, sure let's just under, understand it's not just that he's been calling to testify it is that they are going after they are issuing a bunch of punitive subpoenas right they are saying we would like to see every email and text message that you have sent or been sent to you over the course of your lifetime because we think it would be fun. And on the one hand, there's always the instinct of, oh, well, if they have nothing to hide, they have nothing to fear. But also it's 2023 and we know damn well that what they're trying to do here is find anything that they can then turn into a big deal, right? Anything that they can read out of context to make it seem like that there, like there is a scandal. Uh, they did this to the climate scientist Michael Mann several years ago. This is a playbook that was used by the tobacco industry against scientists who were studying tobacco. It was used against climate scientists. Now it's getting used against social scientists who had the gall to study election disinformation and uh, public health disinformation, COVID disinformation, during a time period where everybody pretty much universally agreed those would be good things to know about. They're empirical social scientists who what they did was try to direct their research towards things that might actually help people govern more effectively. And for that, they're now being targeted, not just by the right-wing hate machine, but also by people in positions of power who can use that governing power for bad. It's an outrage and more people ought to be, particularly more people within and around the social scientists, sciences, I think, ought to be outraged about it. That's absolutely right. And it's, it's on one hand, oh, you're just picking on a professor, get a thick skin, maybe don't do the research, except it's not that. There, there are death threats, addresses are being published, people are being hunted online and, and occasionally in person. You're going after undergraduates. You're making it even more difficult and more of a pain in the ass to simply make a political point so you can fundraise off of it, as you put in your in a recent Substack piece, um, raise money you know, yeah. get on Fox or, or one of the other right-wing sites. But it isn't just that, mm-hmm. right? The attacks, I don't think there's this big nefarious plot. We'll hold these hearings in this order with these people so that in October 2024, I don't think it's that thought out, right? I mean, to quote one of Trump's old old allies, he's not playing three-dimensional chess. He's not even playing checkers, which is trying to keep him from eating the pieces, it's the bite at a time. Ha, we're going to go after this. It's going to get headlines. It'll piss people off. We're going to own the left. I'm going to raise some money. Ha, we're going to do this. And it has the effect of undermining confidence in institutions on which we rely, mm-hmm. like democracy, courts, academia. They're also going after the FBI, mm-hmm. right? And again, it's not because we're going to dismantle the FBI. We're going to defund the police. and We're going to replace them with our secret armies of the night. It's that hey, this is an easy way to own the libs. They're picking on us. Like it's, it's a one-off. One of the effects, oh, the, the effects are broad, right? So Gallup recently um, in July 11th put out a piece on a recent research they've done on <clears throat> America's confidence in higher education. 22% of respondents have very little confidence in higher education. 40% have some, only 17% have a great deal. Unsurprisingly, this is partisan. Mm-hmm. According to the research, in 2015, the year before Trump was elected president, Republican confidence in higher education was at 56%. In 2023, it's 19. This is desperately dangerous. 
Right. And to be clear, that is because of a political communication story that the professors are the bad guys. And that is not rooted in professors actually being the bad guys. Like if your instinct there is to say, oh God, what have we done to cause this? You're kind of being a sucker. Because there is not a set of things that professors have done that have led to the scenario. And it's not as though, oh, if you're just more fair and polite, if you just play defense, then they'll stop picking on you. They have decided to tell a story of the professors or the bad guys because they've seen political advantage of it. In it. They've decided that that is a thing that plays very well in Fox News, it plays very well on like the Daily Wire and the various non-Fox News, but Fox Newsy social media podcasts and videos. Like that story they figured out gets them some clicks. And so now they just need examples in order to keep on feeding the clicks. If your instinct there is to say, well, if we all just like turtle or if we all just sort of ask them, what would you like? So you stop picking on us. That's not going to stop because the logic of this isn't you have done something wrong, we need fixed. The logic of it is, oh, look, money, let me scoop it up. Right. They're going to continue to attack. And so far, too many academics, too many institutions, right? <laughs> Professor's job is to do the research, right? Yeah. If, if most research of our colleagues yeah. wanted to do what you and I do for a living, they'd do it for a living. Mm-hmm. They're interested in solving the problems and understanding and analyzing the data, right? Their institutions need to be creating an environment in which that can happen without death threats. Mm-hmm. The people who fund this research have to say, not only is this research worth funding, worth hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, but it's also worth defending. Because really, if it's worth writing a check and going through the hassle of what it takes to do this research, it ought to be worth not just defending, but promoting. Yeah. Right? There's no, as every college professor ever pointed out, is that if we were really good at indoctrination, mm-hmm. our students would read the syllabus. <laughs> We can't get them to read the syllabus. We are certainly not going to get them to understand some neo-Marxian critique of neoliberalism in a post-industrial, post-capitalist society as interpreted through Jean Baudrillard. Mm-hmm. Like they don't get as far as will this be on the quiz? Right. Right. So it's not, we're not doing that. And it's not enough to hope that the bully picks on the other kid in the funny pants and not you wearing the funny hat. Mm-hmm. We got to play offense. Yeah. Now you, you mentioned the, the Substack post. I, I did write on this uh, a couple of weeks ago in, in a piece uh, called Treating Political Communication as Mission Science. Kind of a, a two-parter of a piece because the first part about mission science, that's a, actually a lecture that I was giving back in like 2015, 2016, prior to Trump getting elected, where I was finding myself a little frustrated. Well, not a little. I, I was finding myself pretty frustrated with the field of political communication for being, I thought, too divorced from pragmatic questions. The set of scientists that most in, inspired me when I was growing up were conservation biologists because I was big in the environmental movement. And they were real scientists who allowed a practical question, a shared mission to shape the questions that they asked. Right. So conservation biology is based around the belief that biodiversity is a good thing and ought to be preserved. That doesn't change the quality of their science. It informs, however, what questions they ask. So like they they ask questions like, okay, if you're going to preserve songbird habitat, you're going to need corridors around the streams that you're protecting. How wide do the corridors need to be? Like that's a scientific question that one could ask. It's a different question than what a microbiologist asks. So like the field of conservation biology is doing real science in order to help. 
And like growing up, I would watch them and I didn't want to be a conservation biologist, but I was like, that that's what science ought to be. And then in what I found in political communication was more often than not, we were studying the things that we had data for and were rarely engaging with, talking with, or listening to the practitioners who were doing this work. And just the questions we asked often seem, particularly in this sort of big data age, often seem just a little off to me where we're being driven by the data and, and letting that shape our questions rather than saying, you know, governance, governance and governance is hard. We ought to understand what makes it complicated and ask research questions upon which we do serious social science that has some practical impact for practitioners. That's how I've always tried to operate as, as a researcher. And so this is a lecture I was giving, again, pre-Trump, that I was trying to nudge the field in that direction. And up until a couple weeks ago, I had never published the, the study because after Trump got elected, a thing that was good in my field was an awful lot of people said, you know what? A lot of things that I felt were stable and we didn't need to worry about are actually quite fragile. I am going to do research that is pointed in that direction. We started to get both from funders and from researchers a lot more attention to these pragmatic questions. And so the field moved in a good direction without me. And I was like, cool, I don't need to say that. I got a little kid. I'm SMPA associate director. I don't need to write this thing. And the reason I wrote it when I did is because of these attacks. Because when I was giving that talk back in 2015 and 2016, a thing that never occurred to me, because conservation biologists, God bless them, have never held power. Like they've never been relevant enough to really powerful actors to get the blowback. And the thing that didn't occur to me back in 2015, 2016 is what happens to serious scientists once malicious people in power decide that they are a problem. And what we're seeing now is like, this is the counter response. Like Kate Starbird at University of Washington has been doing fantastic research that is useful. And the response from people who would rather research not be useful because they would rather the public not have any idea and decision makers have no idea what's actually going on. Their response has been, let's try to make her her life hell so that she gets scared away, other research gets scared away, funders get scared away. We would like it if real science is never directed towards the things that we do, either because we mean harm or because we don't want anyone to know what cretins we are or in some of their cases, a little column A, a little column B, probably both, because of the fact that social scientists have proved useful in tracing uh, disinformation around elections, because they have proved useful in tracing disinformation. Like one of the complaints from Jim Jordan is literally these social scientists were studying public health disinformation and then informing the Surgeon General. When, when did it become a thing where, that we're not supposed to tell the Surgeon General about public health matters? Like that is a, like if that's what he's complaining about, my God, we need to stand up and say, Jim Jordan, you're being ridiculous and we are having people's backs because otherwise the one thing he's doing, it's not that he has a grand plan, but the the instinct, the button he's pushing here is one that otherwise will result in researchers hiding again, funders getting scared again, universities getting scared again, and all of us just sort of saying, let's study things that we have easy data for that no one will yell at and make sure that we are so irrelevant that we can be left alone. That leaves society worse off at a time when we need to be helping. So my God, let's get pissed about this. So I think there, there are a couple of parts of this that I want to unpack a bit, mm -hmm. both for myself and, and for our listeners and viewers, it turns out. You think mm -hmm. our YouTube viewers are bots. You watching us on YouTube 
Dave's the one calling yeah, you. As an aside, if somebody's watching this on YouTube, can you email either one of us or you know hit <laughs> us up on x.com or whatever? X us, Z us, and just let me know. Cause like I refuse to believe that people are watching this on YouTube. They can Why would you look YouTube. at this face? Why? You can comment on the YouTube. It's not maybe it's for the backdrops. Maybe they like that weird fan <laughs> thing. They're wondering, <laughs> like, are you wearing one of those? One of those beanies with a fan. There's so many visual questions. So many. All right. Couple of parts to unpack. I like theory for the sake of theory. I think it's super interesting. I'm not asking every political scientist, political communication scholar, epidemiologist, or anybody else to simply think about how to solve the next problem. But I do think some people ought to be thinking about that. I'm a big theory fan. Like I love reading philosophy for the sake of philosophy. I think it helps you think. I think it's interesting. I also think this can be some of this can be brought to bear on what we're doing today, right? This is not a new question. Richard Rorty, the the American philosopher, late American philosopher, who uh, started his career thinking that philosophy had all the answers and decided in the end it was actually poetry. And his last post was as a comparative literature professor. One of his arguments, though, is that philosophy ought to be in the service of helping us govern better. And he argued for pragmatism, the strain of pragmatism that he was in which he was interested as a counter to authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a way to construct and engage in this. And he was as big deal of philosopher, American philosopher as there has been. And his project is more applied. The question of whether or not these ought to be applied are also not new, right? One of the first books I had to read in grad school at Arizona State was The Tragedy of Political Science by Ritchie, in which he writes at the end of the preface, something is tragically amiss in a discipline which knows these things yet continues working ways to do little to serve the object it sincerely reveres, and that object is democracy, mm-hmm. right? The National uh, Library of Medicine published a piece in 2021, Co-Option, Control, and Criticality, the Politics of of Relevance Regimes for the Future of Political Science. Like, should we be doing things that matter in the real world? This is an old debate, right? right? Unfortunately, the answer, I don't, and people have tried, like a lot of good political scientists try to engage in the public space. We have public intellectuals. I think we need more and it needs to be more strategic, right? Mm -hmm. The other part is it isn't just, I would make an argument for not just quantitative, but also for normative. Mm-hmm. Right. For normative arguments about how ought we be, how ought we govern, right? What is the role of the polity, right? How should we be together? And as you note in your Substack pieces, these are things that can be reasonably up for debate, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, how one should be should be up for debate. And indeed, the debate about whether or not professors should be helping students think independently and question regimes in power goes back literally as far as the discipline of political science. Mm-hmm regular attendees of my classes and occasional listeners of the podcast will be unsurprised to find the Aristotle reference, <laughs> right? I mean, one reading of, of the death of Aristotle was he, he committed suicide rather than, you know, fold to the regime because what he was doing was helping people think, think critically and, and come together and figure out a way to be in a society together, right? These are old questions. Let's continue to engage them. And then also let's play offense. Like we can't, this isn't I'm defending the research. This is I am promoting inquiry. And I know we have the specifics of of Chairman Jordan. Mm -hmm. I do want to get to to one thing and then highlight some things that are going well and some some things that can be done better. Right. The first is on messaging. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a rough transition, but roll with me. I don't think the best messaging is academic freedom. Academic freedom matters. You ought to be able to write what you want. And my colleague, Sam Goldman, with whom I disagree politically, ought to be able to write what he wants. He's lights out smart. 
Yes, academic freedom. Mm -hmm. If the attack is academics think they can study whatever they want without any connection to the real world or do whatever they want just because it occurs to them, the defense can't be, we're academics, you should let us do whatever occurs to us without any relevance to the real world. You're reinforcing the argument. You have to say, yes, freedom matters. We're in America, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. And in addition, we're helping the CDC identify and prevent the next pandemic. We're helping strengthen democratic norms. We are helping ensure you know, the, the uber wealthy don't continue to rack up wealth at the expense of everybody else. We are doing things that point out there is water in Florida that is above 97 degrees. That's problematic. Like you've got to be able to make the case mm-hmm. that this is a public good. And the Chronicle of Higher Education is leaning into this and all of that, but it's we just need, please stop just using academic freedom and please start using things that are going to resonate with people who aren't academics. That's yeah. my, I'm off my soapbox for the moment. Well, let me let me jump on that for a bit because I a I agree with you, and b a, a theme that I always come back to, sort of just a, as a practical tool when I am looking at messaging and comms, is it is a good idea to stay in the zone where what you are arguing is obviously reasonable. And what your opponent is arguing is obviously ridiculous. And part of the way that I do that is I actually swing at very few pitches, right? Like I, I only kind of suit, like if you look at the Brett Stevens thing, if you look at the John Eastman thing, like the, the times when I suit up are times where the thing that is getting me enraged is like, you, y'all are being ridiculous in an obvious way. And I got to say it and I got to say it clearly, but then you hold to that. The problem with saying we're defending academic freedom is, as you said, like they're, they're reinforcing the other side's frame. Generally, don't do that. But it's also like that's a spot where it's like uh, most people don't really care. Like the the value of academic freedom isn't one that is so core that people would look at it and say like, my my God, I must say something. Whereas like here the benefit, and here I'm talking specifically about Jordan and his cronies, I I think it's important to go on offense and say, we believe that social science researchers studying public health disinformation ought to try to do work that would be useful and instructive to the Surgeon General of the United States. Like, all of our work doesn't need to do that, but like, that would be a good thing that we should, you know, celebrate. And if you're saying that the Surgeon General of the United States should never hear about academic research... And the researcher should be punished if he is. Why don't you go ahead and tell us more about that? Because you're telling, like, like that is obviously ridiculous. It is obviously a good thing for academics to be able to be doing research that matters to the Surgeon General in public health, and then tell them about it. That, like, you have if you have the benefit of that clear, like, we are being reasonable, you are being ridiculous. Stay on that frame, pound the table, shout about it, because you are fucking right. And if you are clearly right and the other side is clearly ridiculous, don't retreat back to, and generally we believe in academic, like, of course I believe in academic freedom. Again, Brett Stevens thing. I say a lot of shit. I'm glad to have academic freedom. That's not the core value. The core value here is like, let's not be ridiculous and try to help in the universe. So I think then I, I want to keep an eye to the clock. I want to come back sure. to the specific examples of chairman of the chairman in a couple of weeks in our next podcast. In this one, I do want to keep it a big picture. 
So there are some academics who do a good job of this, who understand they've got things that can that can be on offer. One of the first times I came across this was more than 20 years ago now, a guy named Jim Liebman, who's a professor at Columbia, who happened to be studying the rate of reversal in capital cases. Mm-hmm. Like just think, oh, this is really interesting. I wonder how many times capital cases get overturned. I happened to be running a, an organization called the Justice Project, which no longer exists, which was meant to redefine the death penalty debate in America. And he said, look, I've got this, we found this guy. And he said, I've got this massive data set. Would this be useful? And the first response was, of course not. I can't put multivariate regression analysis in the press. Mm -hmm. Wow, I was wrong. Uh, We had an amazing PR person, a woman named Laura Burstein, who was just an absolute rock star. Front page of every major weekly in the world, Mm -hmm. right? This is quantitative political science. This guy was interested in that ends up helping redefine the death penalty debate in the United States Mm -hmm. because he had smart comms people working with really good data. There's example after example after example of this. And they're also, so we know that. The other side of this is to advocates because I know a lot of our listeners are are either working advocates, dog walkers, and students, Mm -hmm. sometimes all three. Stanford Social Innovation Review does a good job of this. It's smart, it's thoughtful, it's relatively quick turnaround. Um, and it relies on, on researchers. University of Florida has a public interest communications program that does a good job of this, right? And Annie Neiman has been there. She's done really good work. They have a, a publication, which is okay, that does really good work. Uh, Kristen Grimm, who until three weeks ago ran Spitfire Strategies, congrats, by the way, and Kristen on the transition, is increasingly turning to social scientists to inform her work. I know that you like SSIR, or SSRC, rather. Social Science Research Council has done a really good job of supporting researchers who are doing publicly beneficial and publicly relevant research. The communications network is increasingly doing this. So advocates, our urge to you is as you look at not just climate messaging, but any kind of messaging, go to Google Scholar, right? Who has written about framing higher education? Who has written about explaining public health? Who has written about or who's polling on, on any of these things? And don't just look at, at the quantitative data. Don't just look back five or 10 years. Look deeper into philosophy, right? The attacks on higher ed and people like, like Dave and many of our colleagues really do have echoes as far back as Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Dave, you and I both wrote pieces for Media Ethics Magazine recently on ethics and AI. Yours was spot on relevant in the moment. Mine was rooted in, in Plato. I think they're both useful because they're both helping answer the same question mm-hmm. in the same way. So advocates... Turn to Dave Carp, Rebecca Trombel, Katie Baylor, Ethan Porter, right? I think in SMPA, we do a really good job of this. And I'm not just mm-hmm. saying this because my name is now on the door, mm-hmm. but it's theory into practice, right? We've got lights out, smart researchers doing really interesting, really important work. Katie and Ethan um, and Rebecca jumped to mind. And then people who bridge the gap, right? He said, now let's make this relevant. Now let's push this out. Now let's help policymakers understand this. Let's make our students become better citizens and better consumers. Last thought on this, why I know it works. Mm-hmm. And I will stop ranting again. I was on a, a Zoom call last week. I think it was last week with, with one of our students who went from SMPA to the London School of Economics is finishing her master's at LSE. And she said, look, before we get off the call, I have to go to a note I wrote down. And that's to say, Everything I've learned in SMPA applies all the time in my program, especially the data analysis class, Mm. because she looks at her colleagues from around the world, London School of Economics, and this really prestigious graduate program, and she can't 
believe or understand why they don't care about data. Because if you don't understand the data and if you can't do the analysis, how can you possibly know what to advocate for, how to best advocate for it? So more of that, please. I do want to also note, so you mentioned mostly on the practitioner side. I also want to note there's Climate Advocacy Lab. There's Hari Han's program up at Johns Hopkins. Uh, and the, I think it's called E3 Lab is I think what she had started before that. And uh, old school, the Analyst Institute. The reason why I never gave that lecture is because looking around, I realized there are all of these operations that are setting up that are nudging the academic community towards more pragmatic questions, towards engaging with practitioners and doing serious research that helps. That trend has been good. I'm really glad that those organizations are, are around and that they're doing good work. And also we've now reached the stage where they've been doing good work for long enough that opponents have noticed and decided that they would like that good work to stop. You know, like I, I, I'm a qualitative researcher who reads old magazines, right? Like I try to be pragmatic in terms of helping to understand the world to people who are trying to do something about it. But I'm not somebody who brings up a ton of data. Like, I think it's important for us to recognize the moment that we're in. And the moment that we're in is that we have now done work that helps for long enough that powerful people would like that to no longer be the case. Since I like where that we have been heading, I damn sure would like to make sure that we don't go back in the other direction. So two things before we before we end this. I think it's long, but I think an important episode. Yeah. One, there are a lot of other people Dave and I could have shouted out. Mm-hmm. Shout them out will be on Blue Sky, which I angered one listener by misspelling, apparently. Our favorite uh, listener, Stephanie. Stephanie, keep <laughs> heckling him. He needs it. <laughs> but also on the app formerly known as Twitter. I don't know. But like shout them out. Like call out advocates doing good research-based work. Nick Siever, Burness Communications, another SMPA alum, has done really good work on us on climate. There's a Yale Climate Center, George Mason University, Planet Forward, some of our people here in the School of Media Public Affairs. Shout them out. Call out advocates doing really good work rooted in social science. Call out social scientists effectively making the case for their work, not just to each other, but to, to everybody else. Um, so we can make sure that good people doing good work get to do more of it. This is matters who we celebrate. I agree. All right. That's what I got. Uh, not so funny, but super important. We're going to do that. should go on your business card. Pure loads. Not so funny, but super important, but super important. I am. Just ask me. I am so sure nobody apparently has a key to my office, but I've got a great title on the door. The point is that you got the office. (laughs) Apparently I'm getting in tomorrow. Apparently I can get into the office tomorrow. (laughs) apparently. And then I'll both be super, I don't have a key. I'm, I'm also told I'll be given a key. We'll see everybody in, in two oh, weeks. See, no, they'll see us if they're on YouTube, which is creepy. We will be back looking at each other in a couple of weeks. That'll <laughs> be the last episode before we go on hi- hiatus because you get the big job. I hope everybody's having a great summer. Go celebrate some academics who are doing critical, valuable research because that's what we do in the summer, right? We celebrate academics, right? And, uh, and celebrate advocates relying on on academia to help make their advocacy go. Exactly. And, you know, follow us on social media and subscribe to my Substack so we can keep the party going. Woohoo!